That is an, indeed a beautiful picture, and um, man, one of my favorite hymns. Thank you for the fact that we can all worship together um, and, and glorify our God together um, according to his truth of his grace and his great love for us. Well, it is summer. I think summer is officially here. I think we can all step outside, and we'll know that in about 2.3 milliseconds. It's hot out there, and as we just heard a moment ago, there's some families who are heading out on some mission trips this summer, some other families among our church family who are heading out on vacation. Our lead pastor, Mitch, and his family are up in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Uh, they're going to be, Mitch is going to be teaching there today, tomorrow, and Tuesday, then they're going to tack on a few days extra just to celebrate and enjoy the, the cool weather up there in East Tennessee. I know some others are heading to Colorado uh, others to the beach, and it kind of reminds me of a family vacation that I took years ago, and I think when I was about nine or ten years old, we went to visit Carlsbad Caverns over in New Mexico. How many of you have ever been to Carlsbad Caverns? A number of you, okay. Um, how many of you have ever been in a cave, period, Maybe even if it wasn't Carlsbad, okay. It was a pretty cool experience. Carlsbad Caverns is the largest cave in North America. It's one of the largest in the world, and that trip there was memorable to me for two reasons. Um, the first, it was just cool to go down in the cave and see all the neat you know, rock formations and all that stuff. But the second thing was this. We walked down, and we were in a group. We had a tour guide. The tour guide said, okay, I want you to get ready, because what we're going to do is we're going to turn out all the lights. Okay? I want you just to see and feel how dark it's going to get here in this cave. And so sure enough, they turn out all the lights, and man, let me tell you, it was dark. Like the darkest I've ever experienced. You could not literally see your hand in front of your face. All right? I was really glad when I turned the lights back on, because there was no way we were getting out of that cave without the lights. All right? Well, you know, I um, thought about that this week and thinking about uh, this sermon because we're going to be uh, looking at a passage of Scripture this morning where Jesus describes himself as being the light of the world. If you think about going down into a cave and into a place where it's so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face, that is actually kind of fun. It's sort of some of the things you might do on vacation. But isn't it true that sometimes life can take us to some places that are pretty dark? Isn't it true sometimes life can take us to the kind of place where we just feel lost, unsure of where we're going, unable to see the right way to walk? It's in those times and in those places where we need desperately the Lord to be present there right by our side for Him to shine the light of His truth on our path to illuminate the way in which we should go. Um, we're in uh, week number three of this series on the I Am Statements. Last week, uh, Mitch got us started in John chapter 6, talking about Jesus and how he claimed to be the bread of life, the one who can fill us with life at the deepest level of our souls. This morning, though, we're going to be looking in John chapter 8, where Jesus says he is the light of the world. So if you've got your Bible or a device, go ahead and turn or tap your way to John chapter 8, and that's where we're going to start this morning. While you're getting there, let me just tell you that John chapter 8 and the chapter that comes right before it, John chapter 7, they sort of go together. 
they form one unit. They describe the same time and circumstances in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so for us to understand what's going on here in John 8, we have to kind of get the background or the big picture of what's going on. John chapter 7 tells us that Jesus, uh, he had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three big feasts that the Jews celebrated every single year. The specific one that he was going to was the Feast of Tabernacles. And what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about was about remembering and celebrating the fact that God had faithfully and powerfully provided for his people, the nation of Israel, as they left slavery in Egypt and journeyed through the wilderness for 40 years on their way to the Promised Land. The Feast of Tabernacles was a, was a seven-day-long festival, and it had its grand finale on the last day of the feast, okay? And on that, at that grand finale, there were two principal things that happened. The first was this. One of the priests would take a golden pitcher, and he would go fill it full of water, and then pour it out at the base of the altar, they did that to remember and to celebrate the fact that during that wilderness journey, God had faithfully and powerfully provided water for the people of Israel as they journeyed through the desert. When you're in the desert, water is pretty important. Without it, you pretty much die. And God had powerfully provided water for the people from a rock to, to satisfy their thirst to enable them to have life and to keep them strong as they journeyed in the wilderness. And it was at that moment, on that day, when that priest poured out that water that Jesus said what he said in John 7, verse 37. So check it out. Now on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, at the, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Wow. Wow. Jesus is claiming that this miraculous provision of water there in the wilderness, when God brought water from a rock to satisfy his people and to meet their need as they journeyed in the wilderness... Jesus is saying that that ancient event actually pointed forward to him, the Messiah of Israel, who would come to offer to all people living water, rivers of living water that would never run out. That's pretty amazing stuff. But if you scan just quickly the rest of John 7, you'll see that the response to Jesus was kind of a mixed bag. There were some people who... Um, heard Jesus' words. They believed in him and they wanted to follow him. There were others, though, who were doubtful and they, they wanted to reject Jesus and actually get rid of him, okay? Now, remember that all of this is happening against that backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles. Another significant thing that they would do at that feast every year is this, that on that last day at that grand finale, they would go into the temple, into the court of women, right by the treasury, and they would take fire and they would light four huge torches. They'd light them on fire. And they did that 
to remember and celebrate this, that, that during that wilderness journey, God led the nation of Israel as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire every step along the way. Um, this is a story, it's an amazing story. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. It goes all the way through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's an amazing story. This pillar of cloud appeared the day they left Egypt. And it stood between them and the armies of Pharaoh and protected the people of Israel. And then throughout the rest of that journey, the pillar of cloud was with them every single day. It's a stunning, powerful reminder that God was with his people. They were not alone in that wilderness. Now, let's come back to the book of John. Why am I telling you all this? As chapter 7 gives way to chapter 8, we read the story of how Jesus dealt with the woman who was caught in adultery. It's an amazing story. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace to someone who's caught up in sin. It's an amazing story. Sometime we need to cover it, but not today. Because I want to take your attention to what Jesus said there in John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, remember, all of this is happening against the backdrop of that Feast of Tabernacles and the celebration and remembrance of this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. Right there in the same place where they lit those torches, Jesus says this in verse 12. Then again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Wow. Wow. Jesus didn't just choose those words randomly. The people who were there as part of that celebration, remembering the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, they would have been absolutely stunned. Jesus, again, is taking this ancient event of how God was with his people as the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, and he's saying that all of that pointed forward to me. I'm the light of the world. And those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but instead they'll have the light of life. Let me just ask a question. Let's imagine that you were there. You were one of the people there in the temple hearing Jesus say those words. How would you have reacted? Maybe more realistically, let's ask this. How should you and I respond to these words today? What I want to do this morning is this. I want to um, kind of unpack these words and let's just discover what exactly does Jesus mean when he says, I am the light of the world. What does he mean and then how should we respond? What does he mean and how should we respond? That's kind of the roadmap where we're going to go today. Here's the first thing I want you to understand. When, when Jesus says these words, when he claims to be the light of the world, Jesus, at that moment, is identifying himself as God. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, Jesus is claiming to be God himself. Again, the Jewish people who heard Jesus utter those words in that temple, they would have immediately recognized that. They would have immediately recognized that Jesus was identifying himself as God. 
back at that time when that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire appeared in their presence, they identified that as God himself. And throughout their history, throughout the the, the revelation of God's word, we see this concept of light being very closely associated with the person of God himself. Listen to this. In in Psalm 27, verse 1, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Later, in the book of Isaiah, speaking of the kingdom of God that's to come, listen to what the prophet says in chapter 60. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. Again, what we're learning here is this, that when Jesus here in John 8 identifies himself as the light of the world, he is identifying himself as God. What does this mean for us? I think one of the most significant things that we can take from this is this, is that when we see Jesus, when we, when we listen to him, when we read of what he said and what he did, how he responded to the people around him in grace and truth. When we're looking at Jesus, we're looking at God himself. Have you ever maybe had that kind of trouble in your heart of thinking, you know, what, what kind of person is God? I mean, what is God the Father really like? What's he look like? Or how does he act? Or how should I react and, and relate to him? If you ever had that question, my encouragement to you is just look to Jesus. Look to Jesus because Jesus is God. Later in the book of Hebrews, the author says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus is God. Here's the second thing I think these words mean. That when Jesus claims to be the light of the world, he's revealing truth about us, okay? First, he reveals some truth about him, that he is God. Now he's revealing some truth about us. Uh, Let me read what he said again, and I want you to listen really, really closely. Then again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let me give you a little pop quiz. What does Jesus say about those who follow him? What are they going to be walking in? Light, right? By implication, the people who are not following him, what are they walking in? Darkness. All right? Now, we know it's not a literal darkness. It's a spiritual darkness. And what that means is this, apart from Jesus, apart from um, having his presence in our lives and his renewing ability of our hearts, the ability to open our eyes to spiritual truth, apart from him, people might think they know where they're going. They might think they know how life should go. They might think they know what their purpose is. But they're wrong. Without Jesus and his power to transform our hardened hearts and to open up our eyes, the scriptures say that we're walking in darkness that we're darkened in our understanding. And as the book of Colossians says, that we're part of the domain of darkness. 
That's why when Jesus says these words here, that I am the light of the world, and that he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life, that's why they're so significant. Because the reality is, people who aren't following him are in darkness. And he alone can give light. It's a remarkable claim. When Jesus claims to be the light of the world, he's identifying himself as God. And he's reminding all those who would read and hear those words, that apart from him, you're walking in darkness. But if you follow him, you can walk in light. It's a remarkable claim. And it's a claim that demands a response. Some will follow him and walk in light. Others will not follow him and they'll continue to walk in darkness. Sadly, as we read kind of the rest of of what John writes there in chapter 8, the people who were listening to Jesus at the time, they were choosing to reject him. Check out verse 13. It says, The Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, you've got to understand what's going on here. These Pharisees, they are the spiritual leaders there in Israel. They knew all about the prophecies and promises of Jesus and how he would come as the Messiah. They knew that better than anybody. They had seen Jesus do powerful works among the people. They had heard him teach the word of God with power and with authority. And despite all of that, despite all that they knew and all that they had seen and heard, they're rejecting Jesus here for what really truly is a very superficial reason. They're rejecting Jesus based on a technicality. The law that these um, Pharisees followed claimed that for a person's claim to be valid in court, for it to be acceptable and trustworthy, it had to be backed up by two or three witnesses. You had to have some people who would support what you were saying. And so these Pharisees, as they hear Jesus claim to be the light of the world, again, despite all the things they knew about him, all the things they had seen and heard that may establish his authority and credibility, they say, nah, we don't believe you. You don't have any witnesses. There's nobody here to back you up. And so we're not buying it. Well, I love what Jesus says in verse 14. I love his response. He answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. Jesus came from where? Heaven, right? Eventually he would return where? Back to heaven. The fact that Jesus came from heaven and would eventually go back to heaven gives him the power and the authority and the credibility to claim truth about heavenly and eternal things. Um, But Jesus continues in verse 15. These Pharisees, they thought they were qualified to judge Jesus, but Jesus is going to say, no, I'm the one who's qualified to judge you. In verse 15, he says, you judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it. But I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it's been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. 
what Jesus is doing here, he's taking their objection about the need for two witnesses, and he's turning it back on them. In their law, it says you've got to have at least two men to testify. Jesus says, well, I'm testifying, and I don't just have another man to back me up. I've got the Father to back me up. Well, unfortunately, these Pharisees who are resisting him are just dead set on rejecting him. And so they ask next what seems to me to be a very mean and ugly question. In response to where Jesus claimed the support of the Father, they asked Jesus this question in verse 19. They said, where is your Father? The implication here is that at least in their minds, Jesus was an illegitimate child. And as such, he didn't have authority. They knew that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary at a time when, when she and Joseph were not yet married. And so they had doubts as to whether or not he was even legitimate. Okay? They raised that same claim later in the chapter in verse 41. They made that same cutting remark. They said, we were not born as a result of immorality. We have only one father, God himself. Again, this seems to be a very mean and ugly thing they were doing to Jesus. It's almost like they were trying to jab him and get a laugh for themselves and everybody else at Jesus' expense. But Jesus' response is beautiful. He doesn't take the bait. He doesn't get into some, some shouting match with them. He simply answers, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Sadly, as Jesus is pointing out, by rejecting Jesus, and refusing to follow him, these Pharisees were choosing to continue walking in darkness. I wish that this story ended differently, but it doesn't. This isn't one of those texts that ends with a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not like one of the Pharisees came back and said, Oh, no, 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 Jesus, we're good, man. I, I, I believe you. I'm not like the other guys. I want to follow you. It doesn't work that way. There is no happily ever after with these Pharisees. And I think the clear implication here, one of the main reasons why John puts this text here and arranges it in this way, is to influence us to not make the same mistake. To not make the same mistake of rejecting Jesus and choosing instead to follow just our own way. When we do that, we're walking in darkness. Instead, John is trying to encourage us and influence us to follow him, to respond positively to Jesus' claim. Or again, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will have the light, who, sorry, who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so can I just ask a question? Are you following Jesus? Are you seeking to trust him with your life? Are you looking to obey him in according to his word? Are you following Jesus? I'm pretty sure, I, I think a pretty strong assumption is there's a lot of people in this room who say, yeah, I am. I believe that Jesus is the light of the world and that's my heart. I, I want to follow him. I want to give my life to him. I don't want to walk in darkness. I want to have his light. First of all, I think that's wonderful. 
But there's something else I want to talk about here. And that's what does it look like for you and me as we follow Jesus and walk in the light of life? What does that look like on a day-to-day practical basis? What does it mean for you and me to walk according to the light of life that Jesus gives to us? What does it look like? Let's unpack that together. But first, let me tell you this just personally. Uh, This past week, as I was preparing for this message, what we're about to talk next was immensely encouraging and uplifting for me. And I hope that it is for you as well, all right? What does it mean to follow Jesus and have the light of life? What does it look like on a practical day-to-day basis? Remember what I said earlier, behind all of this, behind Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is that image of God as the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that accompanied the people of Israel through the wilderness. Based on that image, let me share with you that this light of life points out three specific things that we can claim hold of, that we can believe and, and, and receive as part of what Jesus has for us as we walk in the light of life. There's three specific things. Let's quickly take a look at each one. First, his presence. First is his presence. When Jesus says, those who follow me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life, he's talking about his presence with us wherever we go, okay? Back in the book of Exodus, back where the nation of Israel was beginning that 40-year journey through the wilderness, in chapter 13 it says this. Don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. Chapter 13 it says, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day, to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The Bible says that the journey that Israel took through that wilderness, all the way from when they left Egypt in slavery till the day they stepped foot in the promised land, The Bible says that journey took 40 years. That's a long time. And what God's word says is that that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire was with them. Check this out. Every step the way. God never left them. Every every moment that they were on that journey... Every time they were afraid, every time they were in need, every time they were in trouble, God was there with them. And what that means for us is this, that when we follow Jesus, the light of the world, we know that he is with us. When we're in what feels like like his wilderness to us, Jesus is right there by our side. He's the one who said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And this helps us so much with our fear, I mean, it may not be very manly to say this, but sometimes I get afraid. I know you do too. We all do. But do you know what is the most commonly repeated command in the Bible? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And almost every time we read that most commonly repeated command, it's followed by the most commonly repeated promise, for I am with you. Why should we not be afraid? 
because I am with you. As we follow Jesus, the light of the world, day by day, we can be confident that he is present with us. Not only that, not only does Jesus' identity as the light of the world mean we have his presence, but we also have his protection. Back in Israel, back, back, back when they were on that wilderness journey, the cloud and the fire protected Israel both day and night. Right at the very beginning, that cloud stood between the nation of Israel and the advancing armies of Pharaoh. Remember that in the book of Exodus? They had their backs up against the wall to the Red Sea. And the, the cloud, the pillar of cloud, stood between them and the armies of Pharaoh and protected them. Not only that, but throughout the rest of their journey, that pillar of cloud protected them from the fierce desert sun. And also at night, protected them from the dark, bitter cold. With Jesus, as we follow him through the cross, he shelters those who turn to him in faith from the fierce wrath of God and his judgment. He also protects us from the spiritual attacks of our enemy. We have the protection of God. And finally, his guidance. Not only his presence, not only his protection, but also his guidance. With Israel, that cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, it, it, it led them through that wilderness. They didn't have a map. They didn't have GPS. There was no Google or Waze or whatever. They had to follow God, and they did. And that pillar of cloud, that pillar of fire, led them to places where they could find shelter led them to places where they could find water. And ultimately, it led them all the way to the promised land. Again, all of us have had that experience of feeling like we're in the wilderness, right? Feeling like we're lost? Feeling like we're overwhelmed? We don't know where to go? As you follow Jesus, the light of the world, one of the things that you need to know is that you can count on him to give you guidance. Jesus guides us through the counsel of his word. He guides us as, as we pray and ask for wisdom, as he brings the, the wise, godly counsel of other mature believers into our lives. We're not alone. He doesn't leave us to, alone to figure it out on our own. He says, I will guide you and I will help you. This past week, I had a pretty vivid example of just how important it is that we follow Jesus closely day by day, looking to him for his presence, for his protection, and for his guidance. Late this past Monday evening, I went to the hospital to visit a family that was there. It was a pretty tragic accident, and the family was understandably in some deep, deep anguish. Um, the doctors and nurses there at the hospital, they had the latest, most advanced medical technology. And beyond that, the doctors and nurses were wonderfully kind and wonderfully caring. Friends and family were rallying to the, to the, to the side of this family. Their phones were literally running out of battery because of all the phone calls and texts that were flowing in to share their support. And, and this family certainly appreciated all of that. But as I sat there with them, in that room, as I held their hand, as I cried with them and tried to, to show the love and support and care of, of, of just the, the, the family of God, 
what I knew they needed more than all of that was Jesus. They needed Jesus, the light of the world, his power to give strength, his power to give peace and comfort in the midst of awful, awful circumstances. They needed his presence. They needed his protection. And they needed his guidance. What all that means for you and me is this. As we follow Jesus, whether we're in the middle of, of a happy day that's sunny and things are going great, or we find ourselves alone at night in a hospital room, we can follow Jesus, the light of the world, and count on him for his presence, his protection, and his guidance. Let me end with this. This past February, just down the road at NRG Stadium, the New England Patriots staged an epic comeback over the Atlanta Falcons, and they claimed their fifth Super Bowl victory. Their quarterback, Tom Brady's arguably the greatest ever, led them to what people are saying is the greatest comeback ever in the history of the Super Bowl. He's an, unbelievably player, an un- unbelievable player, and, and you know, arguably, again, he's the greatest that has ever played the game. But what I found interesting was to reflect back to something that Tom Brady said when he was being interviewed a couple of years ago. This was after their third Super Bowl win, so again, it was a couple of years ago. They've won a few more since then. But this is something that, that Tom Brady said as he was being interviewed on 60 Minutes. I want you to listen to what he said. This is, these are the words of Tom Brady. Why do I have these three Super Bowl rings? Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is it. You've reached your goal, your dream, your life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. That's Tom Brady. Five-time Super Bowl champion quarterback of the New England Patriots. There are over six billion people on this planet. And of those over six billion people, there are exactly 32 who are good enough to start as quarterback in the NFL. Of those 32, there are maybe two or three who are really good. And then there's Tom Brady. He's awesome. Okay? Tom Brady is unbelievably wealthy. Not only is he unbelievably wealthy, he'll never want for anything, but he is in the best shape of his life. He has an army of people to feed him and help him work out. He is in incredible shape. Tom Brady is really good looking, okay? And his wife is a Victoria's Secret supermodel, all right? Tom Brady is living the dream. He is on top of the world, and yet he's sitting in that interview saying, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be it. Tom, you're right. This, these five Super Bowl rings, all of your money, 
all of your adoring fans, your beautiful wife, this isn't it. I don't know where Tom Brady is spiritually. I mean, he could be a follower of Jesus. I don't think he is. I've not heard that story. Maybe I'm wrong. But what I find interesting is, is here, this, this man who by all accounts is walking in darkness and yet has everything this world could offer is reflecting on the fact that, you know what, everything the world has to offer isn't it. And perhaps without even knowing it, he's putting his finger on the truth of this text this morning. That what it is, is having the light of life. And the wonderful thing about it is is this. None of us, I mean, newsflash, none of us are ever going to be as great as Tom Brady. Okay? This dude has millions of people who think he's the greatest thing ever. That's not going to happen for us. But every single person in this room, we can have it. And we find it as we follow Jesus and walk with the light of life that he gives. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Man, I say this all the time, but it is so relevant to us. Even though this... Um, statement by you, Jesus, happened hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It is so very real to us today. We praise you together that you are the light of the world. We affirm that. And because of that, you, you give us your presence. You, uh, you stay with us and protect us and then give us guidance. And as we follow you, No longer will we walk in darkness, but we'll have the light of life. Thank you so much for that incredible gift. The fact that you love us and invite us into your family through grace. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross, for taking our sins upon yourself, for dying for our sins in our place, and then rising from the grave three days later through your resurrection. You authenticated and certified that everything you said and everything you promised to us is absolutely true. We praise you this morning, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You know, as we get ready to leave this morning, I just want to say if there's anybody here who has questions about what we talked about, if you want to pray together, If you want to find out more about who this Jesus is and how you can have the light of life, I'd love to talk with you. There's a few of our elders here as well. They would love to talk with you as well. It would be our great joy to have that conversation with you. Okay? Other than that, have a great, happy Father's Day. We'll see you next Sunday. We are dismissed.